The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Good morning, IBC. How you doing? Glad that you're here. My name's Jared. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. It's September 24th, and at about four o'clock today, um, it's gonna be 102 degrees. Yay. (laughs) Yay. Hear our prayers, Lord. (laughs) We're in a series called Rethink, and it's like, I'm kind of rethinking about living in Texas. You know, I'm just ready for some fall weather. Glad that you're here. Hopefully it feels good in the room. We're in week uh, three of a series called Rethink. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're gonna be in just a bit. In this series, we've acknowledged the reality that so many people in our world are rethinking faith through various forms and levels of of deconstruction. Uh, Last uh, week and the week prior, Barry defined deconstruction as this, the taking apart of the version of faith that was passed down to you in order to process what faith now may or may not look like. That process can be very normal, natural, and even necessary uh, as part of your spiritual formation, not the abandoning of faith, but the process of taking it apart to examine what's been given to you and to say, is this true? Is this good? Is this essential? And most personally, is this, is this mine? Is this mine? Um, in our hurting world, people are deconstructing Uh, But we would be uh, remiss, um, foolish, uh, maybe even a touch disconnected if we just didn't acknowledge that like in this room, people are deconstructing, taking a version of their faith that is really hard in this season to grapple with, taking it apart to examine, is this true, good, essential, is it mine? What can I hold on to? We'd be foolish to think that it's those people out there in that world who are struggling. The reality is, is that life is hard and disorienting for all of us. And you're in good company in this room today if you find yourself in a spot where you're grappling with faith or with who God is or with Jesus or with the church. Deconstruction happens for a number of reasons, but they they kind of fall into four buckets. And I wanna give you those, those categories. Number one is intellectual dissonance. There is something intellectually that you're not able to connect right now with scripture and faith and Christ and and life. Number two is spiritual doubt. It's not the intellect, it's actually the doubt spiritually. There's just this, this void, it feels thin and distant. Number three, relational damage. And this is really personal for a lot of us, like people who are supposed to represent the kindness and compassion, the truth and the love of Jesus in your life, and maybe didn't. And so you experience relational damage that is, is causing some deconstruction or questions. And, and number four is this, common to all of us, suffering, suffering causes us to, to deconstruct. When the questions and the answers don't seem intellectually honest, when the experience of God feels thin and distant, the embarrassment relationally of someone rejecting you, maybe it was an abuse from a parent or a family member or a boss even, the diagnosis of a serious illness, the dopamine and serotonin wears off, the loss of a parent or a child, the directionlessness of life, the addiction that has its grip on you, the career that doesn't satisfy, the boss that just let you go or your spouse or friend or mentor even is questioning, questioning Jesus. 
All of these are very normal and they're very common experiences in a broken but beautiful world. And they will shake you to your core when you're in the depths of them. They can be what I, what I like to call walkout moments. Those moments, you know, like maybe the movie isn't so good and so you stand up and, and you walk out. Maybe the sermon isn't so good, so you stand up and, and walk out. Feel free, grace, I get it. Or maybe it's like thousands of Oregon Duck fans yesterday who got up and walked out because it was a blowout for the CU bus. You know what I mean? Like it was just a moment like, I'm, I'm done. Positively for Oregon Duck fans, they were winning. Negatively for the Buffs, they lost. Coach Prime and his team finally got struck down. And maybe negatively for you, you just wanna stand up, turn around, walk, just walk away for a bit. Get some breathing room from this whole Jesus thing and the faith. There's the stoic route, we kind of take it on the chin. Memento mori, harden emotionally, get through it, the obstacles away. There's the ancient Epicurean route, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Or there's the Jesus route, which is stay in it. Stay close to him because he's close to you. It can seem most natural, even necessary, like a necessary response to walk out, to walk away from, from well, Jesus. And I just wanna propose to you that in our questions and in our mixed emotions, the most personal, spiritual, relational question you can be asking in your deconstruction or your doubt is where is Jesus in that? Last week, Barry talked about distortions of God, the quid pro quo God, this, this karma God. You get what you have coming to you. Get what you deserve. Or the guilt trip God, these distortions where God guilts you into relationship with him. And he says, we can let go of those distortions, but what's hard is when those distortions are reflected in our relationships. Quid pro quo people who are supposed to represent Jesus or guilt trip people who are supposed to represent Jesus. That can make it really hard to follow Jesus. Relational damage and suffering where is Jesus in my deconstruction? Barry said that, that God is most preeminently revealed in the person of Jesus. But if you remove the central figure of the Christian faith, you no longer have the Christian faith. So where is Jesus in my Christianity when my Christianity doesn't seem to make sense right now, when I'm hurting, when I'm hopeless, when I'm asking questions? That's the question. Where is Jesus? Jesus is the central figure of our faith. He is God revealed. He's the God man. And so today we're gonna see where is Jesus. For two disciples who were in a spot similar to some of you or some of your kids or some of your grandkids or your friends or our culture at large where we are taking apart a version of faith and trying to put it back together. Where's Jesus? Luke 24. A bit of context on Luke. Uh, we're getting into this gospel where Luke in chapter one says, I, I'm writing a detailed and orderly account. He's very detailed and very orderly. He was a doctor in this time. And so Luke, the doctor, um, is being funded by a gospel patron named Theophilus. Theophilus is sending him to write this gospel down uh, to make sense of what the life and the work of Jesus was so that we would have an account of Jesus' work and Jesus' life. This is important as we go to the final chapter in the Gospel of Luke because Luke cares about you and I knowing the truth, having the evidence, knowing what happened so that we can grapple with reality. And that's, that's what Jesus wants us to do is to stay in reality and to stay with him. And so Luke chapter 24, we're gonna be in verses 13 to 35. This is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. Really, you're gonna see three things. You're gonna see two friends going on a walk and talking. A walk and talk. Anybody like those? They're good. They're good. You're going to see a third friend join the walk and also the talk. And then you're going to see them have 
dinner together at a table. So Luke 24, 13 to 35, it says this. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Everything that had happened. The same day, what day is this? Now the same day, this is uh, earlier in the chapter, the first day of the week, which in the Jewish calendar would be Sunday. This is the day that Jesus rose from death. And so Jesus at this point already died on the cross. He's alive. And now the same day, these two disciples are, are leaving Jerusalem and going back to Emmaus. They're going to Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jerusalem was the center of where God was going to bring his glory, his justice, his righteousness, his revelation, his work to restore and redeem Israel and the world. This is where God was at work. Emmaus was this village um, known to be a Roman spa, this place where you would go when life hurts, you want to get some consolation and some comfort. Emmaus in Jerusalem. Ronald Rollheiser says this, an entire spirituality can be unpackaged from that simple line. For Luke, Jerusalem means the dream, the hope, the religious center from which all is to begin and where ultimately all is to culminate. And the disciples, these two are walking away from this place, away from their dream toward Emmaus, the Roman spa, a place of human comfort and consolation, a Las Vegas or a Monte Carlo. Since their dream had been crucified, the disciples are understandably discouraged and walking away from it towards some human solace, despairing in their hope. And we'll see later in the passage when they say, we had hoped, we had hoped. They're going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about a seven mile walk, which from IBC, I did a little radius on Google Maps. Like that gets you to basically Grapevine Main Street from here. So like they're walking to Landon Winery. They're gonna have a glass of wine and talk it through. Jesus was just crucified. The Messiah movement is, is over. They're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, leaving the dream and going toward the deconstruction. They're talking about how life now feels more like it did then, like the, the hope is done, the dream is, is killed, the Messiah is dead. But literally they know the same, it's the same day that he was raised. He was raised. Here's what it says in verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. Can y'all say with them? with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. This is passive in the Greek. And so it's not necessarily their action that is keeping them. It's actually a revelation that is not yet given to them. They don't yet see the resurrected Jesus for who he truly is. They were kept from recognizing him. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus came up and walked along with them. In verse 17, he asked, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I love this. These guys are hurting they're hopeless. They're asking hard questions. They're, they're lost in the dream that they had of, of, of Jesus. They're going back to Emmaus. They're on a walk. They're having a talk. And guess what? A third friend joins them. He comes along the way and he walks with them and he talks with them. I love it. He asked them a question. What, what are you discussing? says this, they stood still, their faces downcast. They're on a walk and then all of a sudden they, they, they stop at the question of Jesus. Like I can imagine almost the disdain rising up. Like, what do you mean what things are we discussing? 
They stop dead in their tracks. Their faces look downcast, which is the revelation of what's happening in their heart. They're on their way from Jerusalem where it was supposed to happen. God was supposed to move, restore the glory, redeem Israel, bring the healing of the nations. They're on their way to Emmaus. Need a little comfort and consolation. And Jesus says, what are you discussing? Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, come on, Jesus. They don't know who he is yet. But like, come on, man. Are you the only one who doesn't know what just happened? Like Jesus at this point was popular. He was also hated. That's why he was killed. He did beautiful works for people, but he also declared that he was the Messiah and lived that out so much so that they, they pinned him to a cross. Everyone knew what went down in Jerusalem. Are you the only one he doesn't know, man? Like, come on, get a clue. We're hurting here. We're on our way to Emmaus. We're breaking this whole thing down. Are you the only one? And I love this next line, verse 19 from Jesus. It says this, he asked the question, what things? I love it. And kindness and almost a bit of, of playfulness because he knows where he's gonna take them. He goes, tell me more. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem? And he goes, what things? And I just wanna offer a bit, a bit of pastoral care and, and maybe a tip as you minister to your friends, family, for those who are hurting and deconstructing or asking questions or wrestling, maybe in a moment like this where it feels like there's some sarcasm and some cynicism, maybe even some defiance towards you, where someone's asking you about your faith, like, come on, man, get a clue. Don't you know what I'm going through in this hurting, broken world? Like, are you the only one who doesn't get it? Instead of getting defensive and backing off, shutting down the conversation and walking away, what does Jesus do? He steps toward him, leans in, Tell me more. What things? I want to hear your story. And we can do the same for people who are hurting and doubting and questioning. And they need a, a faithful presence in their life to say, tell me more. What things? I want to know more of your story. Jesus asked him, what things? He has the conversation. Keep going. He doesn't shut it down. And then Cleopas answers, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, like, hello, like, about Jesus. He was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people. So he starts to go toward the theology and the intellect. He was, he was a prophet, but we also experienced his power, both God and people. We recognize this, recognize who he was, but our chief priests, verse 20, and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they they crucified him, but we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You can hear the pain and the concern and the breakdown in these lines. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. The third day, the third day. Like what, what happens on the third day in the great story of the Bible? Jesus raises from death. It's the same day, but they're not saying it that way. They're saying it's the third day, which the fourth day for Lazarus when he was in the tomb was when he started to stink because his body was was decomposing. And they're like, it's, it's really lost, man. Like the game is over. It's the third day already. Verse 22. In addition, Cleopas goes on, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. 
They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, they didn't see Jesus. They didn't see Jesus. The disciples, Cleopas and the other one there, couldn't recognize Jesus yet, which tells us in their deconstruction, doubt, questioning, and pain, this wasn't an intellectual problem necessarily. They said the right things. They recognized him partially for who he was. They hoped that he was more, but they realized he wasn't because he was dead. It wasn't intellectual primarily. Scholar Thabiti Anuabwile says this, their problem is not intellectual. Their problem is that they don't, their problem is not that they don't know some things that they need to know. The problem, beloved, is, is spiritual, relational. And it's in those places of spiritual doubt or relational damage where we think we should just walk out, get some space, walk away from Jesus. And so we go on a walk and we're having a talk and where's Jesus in our deconstruction? He's walking with us. He's talking with us. I just wanna encourage you too, if you're in that place, like there's two people walking and talking, right? If you're, if you're struggling, don't do it alone. Both these guys were struggling, but Jesus joins them. He'll join you. He walks with you and talks with you. Jesus joins both the walk and the talk, but neither the walk nor the talk shake him. In fact, this is what he says in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I love it. Jesus offers a counterclaim to their story. He offers a more expansive frame for their understanding. He goes, wait, wait, wait. We'll splash of water on the face like, how foolish are you? How slow to believe? What he's pointing out there is like, you, you know all the intellectual things you need to know, but you're not connecting the dots. Let me help you. Let me walk and talk with you. Did not the Messiah have to suffer and then enter glory? These two disciples didn't want that. What they wanted was the Messiah to enter glory and not suffer, to end the suffering. He says, no, 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 like, don't you get it? The Messiah, me, the Messiah had to do this. I had to suffer. Why? For you, for me. Don't you get, this is how, this is how it works. I suffered so that you wouldn't. I died in your place. I'm bringing you back. I'm back. I'm restoring your glory. The Messiah had to suffer and then Enter glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus takes them on a guided tour, the best Bible study you could ever have. Jesus explaining Jesus in the scriptures. Beginning with Moses, which represents the Pentateuch, the first five books of scripture, and then all the prophets, essentially the entire Hebrew Bible. It'd be like Jesus saying, guys, 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 let's walk and talk. Seven miles, we're almost a grapevine, man. Like we got a bit of time. Here we go. Uh, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. That was me. Or like, remember when, when God made a covenant with Abraham to make a people that would bless the nations? That was me. Or like, remember when God uh, redeemed Israel out of slavery in Exodus and made a covenant with them and gave them the law that they might live set apart and people might see and know that 
Yahweh is Lord. That, that was me. Or like, remember the covenant I made with David where I promised that there would be a king on the throne who would rule and reign with justice and righteousness? That was, that was me. Remember in the prophets, Isaiah, where it says that there would be a suffering servant who wouldn't crush the bruised reed or put out the, the dim candle. He'd be a tender, suffering savior. That was me. He revealed in all the scriptures, everything concerning himself. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. I love it. One scholar said that what God loves to do is to draw out our desire for him. And so when going just a touch further, they start to think like, whoa, 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 we want you to stay with us. The desire is, is stirred within to stay with Jesus, to keep Jesus with him. They don't know he's Jesus yet, but they want him to stay. Something's stirring in their heart. He just took them through scripture and talked about Jesus in their deconstruction. And I love it. He, he's acting as if he's going a bit further. It'd be like in some ways, Jesus being like, hey, if you wanna ask hard questions, let me take you a bit further. You wanna keep going on this walk of deconstruction and doubt? I'm with you. I'll walk and talk with you as far as you wanna go. And they're like, wait, st stay with us. It says they urge him. It's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So they went in and he went in to stay with them. So now they're inside and it says this in verse 30, when he, Jesus was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Hmm. So he guides them through the scripture. Now he takes them to a table and he takes some bread and he, he gives thanks and he breaks it and he's gonna give it to them. I wonder what that reminds them of. Oh yeah, the night, just a few nights earlier where Jesus did the same thing, the night he was betrayed, took some bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm the bread of life. Verse 31, it says this, then, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Apparently when you're resurrected from death and you've got life everlasting, you can disappear. So that's cool. But there, in that moment, when he broke the bread and he gave it to them, that's when they recognized finally who he was. Jesus, in their doubt and deconstruction, walks with them, talks with them, takes them through the scripture, takes them back to the table. We experience the personal presence of our living God who said, do this in remembrance of me. Rehearse the story, receive the story, live the story. I will walk with you and talk with you. I will break this bread with you. Then they recognize Jesus. Oh. He disappears in verse 32. They say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and, and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us, which is reminiscent of like Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet who says, the word of God is like a fire shut up in my bones. I had to declare it. Was not the word of God burning within us as the word of God revealed the word of God to us? The scripture is coming alive because the living Lord is telling us they're all about him, that the Messiah must suffer for you and me. 
that he would die for you and me, that he loves you and me, that in all of our questioning and pain, he walks and talks with you and with me and with all of them out there in that hurting world. He cares for us. It's the greatest story ever told about the greatest relationship ever offered. Were not our hearts burning, they asked. Then they got up and returned once, at once to Jerusalem. They went back. They're going back to the center, back to the place where God's gonna restore the glory, redeem Israel, send out his witnesses. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. And, and they were saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then, they, then the two of them told what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. There it is. They get to Emmaus, the place where they're gonna, they're gonna leave it all behind to have a, an encounter with Christ. And he sends them back to Jerusalem. Hearts burning because of the scriptures. Revelation because of the table. And they go back to Jerusalem, which Luke, the writer who writes Acts, would later say that's where God poured out his spirit, fulfilling the prophecy of Joel 2. And at the outpouring of the spirit in the beginning of Jerusalem, that's where the witnesses of God would go out into all the earth to share this good news. He is alive. And we're here today because of that moment. They went back to Jerusalem. Two friends walking and talking, a third friend joins the walk and the talk. He leads them through the scriptures and to the table and they go back to Jerusalem. It's pretty cool. I don't know where you're at and you're questioning or you're hurting or your pain, but if you're on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus walks and talks with you. He's not shaken by your many questions. He's not put off by your mixed emotions. He is God revealed. And what he reveals about God is this unwavering love. Trust him. It's the only response. Trust him in the questions. Trust him in the certainty. Trust him wherever you're at. Trust him. Many of us know the great story of Billy Graham, but not many know the story of his partner in that time who was helping spread the gospel, Charles Templeton. In 1936, Charles Templeton came to faith. In 1945, he joins Billy Graham on this tour to declare the gospel. In 1948, Templeton starts to question his faith and deconstruct him. By 1957, he's an agnostic. So he goes on this journey over 20-something years with Jesus and ends up leaving, ends up walking out. At 83 years old, agnostic and um, still influential, He's interviewed and uh, the interviewer asked this question, how do you assess this Jesus? The interviewer said, it seemed like the next logical question to ask, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke in, in Templeton. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable talking about an, an old dear friend. His voice, which at times displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, 
the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and it led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What, what could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? The interviewer was taken aback. He says, it sounds like you really care about Jesus. He said, well, yes, he's the m- most important thing in my life, but I know, I know it may sound strange as an agnostic, but I have to say I, I do adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He, he castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him in that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being who ever lived. There've been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Templeton goes on to say he's, in my view, he's the most important human being who's ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him, says the interview. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack. I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes and he turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply, wiped away a tear. And after a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. I miss him. Friends, if you're in a spot in your life where you've, you've gone so far to Emmaus, you've left Jerusalem, you've walked away from Jesus, but you feel that, that yearning for his love, you miss him, he's with you. He walks and talks with you no matter where you're at. And he's with you today, he's with us today. And He's sending us out into a world who needs him. Your family, your friends, your kids, your grandkids, your hurting coworkers who think surely if there is a God, he ain't walking and talking with me. Like, let me show you. Let me show you his love. Let me be a faithful presence in your life. Let me care for you. Let me serve you. Let me pray for you. Do you know Jesus? Let me share Jesus. Take him to this story. Show him this truth. The only response is trust. There's nothing you gotta do for him. There's nothing you gotta do to earn it, to get back right with God. Just trust this. The Messiah had to suffer and he did for you and me. He did it because he loves you. He's God revealed and what he reveals about God is unwavering love. Trust him. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.